Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. Number one on my list isn't going to Mars, it's going to the moon. It's going to the moon to do the advanced work you need to do on the moon in order to build the infrastructure to support a, a space-based economy. I mean, science is like the modern version of pyramids or art. Wealthy nations can afford to do space science, and they do it because they can, not because there's necessarily an economic return. The only economic returns from space right now are communications and remote sensing. I, I don't speak for the rest of my colleagues in this business who love space tourism, and I, I like it. I got nothing against it. I just think it's a sideshow. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of Trium Connects. So, my friends, it seems like every time you turn on the news these days, there's some story about this billionaire or that blasting off into space with some hand-picked people to go with them on some sort of short little ride into near orbit. There is a lot of talk about how this is the start of some sort of new age of commercial space exploitation and exploration. I must say that I have my real doubts about this, but I decided that uh, I must recognize my own ignorance in this area and bring on somebody to the podcast who is probably better able to answer questions about the current state of space exploration and the evolution of space commerce than anyone else that I know. And so my guest for this episode is Andrew Aldrin. Andy has had a ringside view of humans' interaction with space from the dawn of the space age. I want you to imagine just for a moment the impact it would have on a young boy watching his own dad walk on the moon and become this kind of worldwide household name. You know, it's interesting, but my sense is that Andy, like most kids, um, just didn't seem to see his life as extraordinary at that point. After all, he was growing up in a neighborhood full of children of NASA's astronauts. But from these formative times, Andy's life really has mirrored the evolution of human space interactions. I mean, he went on to get a PhD from UCLA, not in rocket science or astrophysics, but in political science. And I believe this is a real reflection of his and others, obviously, their realization that what created and, and constrained and formed the future of humans' role in space was really the very earthly politics all around us, both the politics of domestic funding, but also of international competition. Now, after his PhD, Andy had stints as a resident consultant at the RAND Corporation and a professional research staff member at the Institute of Defense Analysis. And I can kind of think of these times as a reflection of the growing importance of space-based hardware for earthbound defense systems. Now, of course, that importance continues, but we could see the real rise of it at that time. And then, and then when he went on to become a head of business development at advanced programs for Boeing's NASA systems, and after that, he was named the director of business development and advanced programs at the United Launch Alliance. Now, these interactions, I think, reflect a time of the kind of full flowering of the public private partnership model of space development and space exploration and the, and the kind of the evolution of big space industry. He then decided to leave this big space and became the president of a relatively small company called Moon Express. Now, this was a privately funded commercial space company. 
And I think that this is kind of reflecting the rise of smaller, privately owned actors in this industry. Now, Andy is the president of the Aldrin Family Foundation. The foundation is involved in some really wonderful work promoting STEM activities in schools uh, across uh, many, many countries. Uh, It also sponsors and collaborates on the creation of new space entrepreneurs uh, through a degree program uh, and partnership with the Florida Institute of Technology. And it sponsors primary space research. Now, all of this activity is working towards the goal of establishing a permanent human presence on Mars. And last but certainly not least, Andy is a alumni of the Trium Global EMBA program. He graduated in 2005. So I hope you can see why I believe that Andy is such a great person to ask some questions about where we're headed. And as you will see, many of those answers are not anything like what you have been currently reading in the newspapers and the more kind of frothy accounts of where we're headed. So without any further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Someone I feel lucky to call my friend, Andrew Aldrin. Andy Aldrin, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thank you, Matt. It's a, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to be here. Oh, it's, it's great to see you again, my friend. It's, it's wonderful. It, it, it is great. If I have any questions ever space-related, I know who to turn to. So it's, it's, I'll it's give my... you an answer. You may not like it, but I'll give you an answer. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, we come up with these topics for uh, Triumph Connects, and sometimes it's just kind of inherently interesting topics that happened a long, long time, and then sometimes it's kind of timely things. And it, it seems like the last time I've been watching the news over the last, I don't know, three, four, five months, various billionaires are blasting off into space with their various uh, hand-picked uh, colleagues. Right. And um, I thought that this was in some ways overshadowing a lot of the more kind of interesting evolution of space as a commercial, as a place for commercial activity. And I just thought it'd be, it'd be nice to, to start, you know, to try to flesh that out in an episode and because it's a massive industry. Yes, it is. I mean, we're literally, I mean, it depends on how you slice it and dice it and what's part of space and what's not part of space. But if you include the revenue that's derived from things coming out of space, we'll be at a billion dollar, excuse me, a trillion dollar economy um, in the next 10, 20 years. And and a trillion dollars is, you know, that's getting to be real money. Yeah, yeah. You start to pay attention to there. Right. So for the listeners who uh, have listened to the other podcasts, you know, I kind of like simple frameworks. And I found one by a guy named, um, or two guys named Weinzier, I think, and Sarong. Yep. They were in a HBR article. Yeah, Matt, Matt is great. And bring, having him as part of the community is just fantastic. Oh, that's great. So I, we will we will put the site in the show notes. Um but he comes up with this kind of, I think, a useful way of thinking about different types of activity in space. Mm-hmm. And he, he's got the two categories are space for Earth and then what he calls space for space. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, space for Earth is kind of what we know. And it's a massive industry. It's, you know, all, all the stuff that we think of, of telecommunications, Internet, imaging, national security, right. public-private partnerships in all those areas. And so I want to talk a bit about that, as well as this kind of space for space. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like a, more of the kind of, I, I don't want to call them out there characters, but more of the people that focus on the future see this massive ex- potential growth in this space for space industry or space for space 
commercial area. And so we want to spend a little time on there. As far as I know, it it's kind of driven by this idea that it's so expensive to make stuff on Earth and then blast it off into space that wouldn't it, it, it's just inherently cheaper to make stuff out there and use it out there. Uh, yeah. And that's and that's what I understand for the space for space. Is that right? It is. It is. And, you know, for for as long as we've been flying into space, we've been complaining about the cost of flying into space. And um, and we haven't really done that much about it. I mean, I know we love to talk about reusable rockets and how much that's reduced the cost. But the truth is, um, even if you if you got the first stage of a rocket, which is all we're reusing at this point for free, the hardware costs you nothing. Theoretically, the most you could reduce the cost is really the, the way industry works right now, 30, maybe 40%. In any case, it's not going to get any, any further than 50% because you've got a, a ton of engineers that are on the ground um, making sure the rocket is working correctly. You've got a ton of people that are operating and launching the vehicle and, and this is all fixed costs that don't just magically disappear when you're reusable. So we still have the problem of the cost of launch to space. And I, I honestly don't see anything that's going to change that here on Earth. But, you know, if the way of solving the problem of launching into Earth orbit from the Earth is launch it from the moon. And so long term, I think there are tremendous possibilities there's an end state out there that really does make a lot of sense and could fundamentally change the way we do space. That's an easy thing to say. The, the challenge, of course, is how do you get from here to there? And there is, you know, it really is a massive risk reduction problem. And it's not just technical risk, because I think actually we understand technologically the things we have to do to get to a point where you can um, manufacture, produce rocket propellant on the surface of the moon, which is kind of the holy grail of the whole thing. Um, we understand how to do that technically. We do not have a clue how to make that happen in terms of developing the business model that gets us there. We don't really understand the policy framework that gets us there. We don't really understand how you finance something. And so it will be some degree of public-private partnerships, but if you dig into it, the problem that you run into is in so many instances, government and private interests are in complete conflict with each other. So that's not to say we can't negotiate our way through it, but that's going to be the challenge of getting to the space to space economy, which I, I truly believe is, is something that will happen and will transform space. I just can't tell you when. I can tell you the problems that we have between here and there, but I can't tell you when it's going to get solved. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. We're, and we're going to get into a lot of the topics you just raised uh, in a bit. But one of the things that when I was learning and, and doing my homework for this podcast, it seemed to me really interesting that, you know, of course, there's technical challenges and we understand a lot of that stuff. But What's interesting to me is that the thing that will need to be in place to make sure all of that happens is not some, it's not going to be invented in some lab somewhere. It's about how do we get ownership rights correct? How do we get risk regulatory regimes put into place that everybody knows what, what is there? How do you define and cost negative externalities in space? And who's going to be responsible for those? And those are all problems that we have. Well, we, we, we have on Earth and we haven't 
done really well at solving them on Earth either. But, but in some ways, it's kind of comforting, or at least to me, interesting to know that the kind of the boundary or the barrier that's stopping a lot of this more uh, kind of almost like science fiction, it would seem, development isn't the technical stuff. No. It's, it's, the, it's our same old problems of how we organize, organize ourselves as humans in some kind of collective action. It is. And, and one of the, the frustrations and maybe one of the kind of the career drivers for me is that we do a great job of training people how to solve the, the technical problems. And, and as I said, we, we know how to solve those problems, but we don't do a very good job of training people to understand and, and negotiate our way through these other non-technical problems because they really do end up being a series of negotiations. Yeah. And we used, you know, what I'm, I'm not a rocket scientist, right? But right. actually what, what we should be saying is I'm not a social science, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. That, just my bias, you know. <laughs> that one's not going to sell, but you can try it. All right. So let's talk about Space for Earth first, because, you know, again, I think this is the stuff that most people are familiar with. Uh, these are the telecommunication satellites that we all rely on. Uh, more and more, it's going to be Internet. We have imaging, ever more access to imaging. I, I was reading an interesting article that said that um, venture capitalists, no, excuse me, not venture capitalists, private equity firms are now using imaging to look at the number of cars and parking lots in retail outlets yep. as an independent measure of, of traffic through these retail outlets. So this, again, it's just this amazing array of, of uh, activities. And on top of that, all the national security stuff. But I, I wanted to ask you something about the developments like Starlink. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, as I understand this, there's going to be a, a kind of a complete cloud of, of satellites completely around the earth that will allow for high-speed internet access to anyone on Earth. Do, do I have this more or less correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you combine, you know, the the various incarnations of Starlink, they've got three phases to it with um, Amazon's um, Kuiper. Um, what else is there's OneWeb, and there's another uh, there's another very large constellation out there. We're talking about over fifty thousand satellites, but combined. All of those 50,000 satellites, if you look at their capacity, are still less than 10% of internet capacity in 2030. So if they, right. if, if they were operating perfectly, you know, 100% of the time, which of course a network can't, when it's flying over the ocean, it's probably not carrying a whole lot of data anyway. So yeah, there is, there is a notion of a, a ubiquitous LEO-based constellation. And you know there are things that we can we can kind of take apart in that discussion, but I'll just say in general it's not if you if you kind of look at the the business case for the industry, it's not an obvious slam dunk. And I've actually yeah. spent some time digging into this. Yeah, because I imagine the areas of the world that would most benefit are the least likely to be able to pay for this service. That's true. There was a constellation. Well, there is actually. It's flying now. It's called O3B, which is for other 3 billion people, the 3 billion people who don't have connectivity um, when they don't have con connectivity, because as you point out, they, they can't pay. And so what makes you think that probably the most expensive way to provide communications is going to be able to sell to them at a profit? Yes, yeah. it, it probably ends. I mean, it, it's a it's a laudable goal and it's probably something that individual governments or global governments, dare I say that, you know, should contribute to funding that. 
but um, it's that's not just, I mean, even if you set aside their ability to pay and assume that they can pay, one of the problems you have is you're competing with terrestrial solutions that are pretty cost effective. Yeah. And, and if you actually look at the business case from what we know about the cost of these, um, these constellations and, and what a reasonable expectation of market capture would be, even if you accept that they're, they've got fairly high market capture, it, it's still not a winning business case. In order to make that business case work, you rely on um, a, a potential market for remote, very high um, value users that, that are willing to spend literally orders of magnitude more money um, per megabit than, yeah. than a residential customer. And that's it's not obvious that that market is going to be large enough to sustain you know, what is a total of like $150 billion of investment. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my paranoid nature um, would say that um, these kind of figures are are clear, uh, and so there there could be you know what what is an alternative motivation to have a net of this size around? I don't, I don't know. Here here I'm starting to sound a little bit paranoid, but uh, I just wonder. Uh, let me let that kind of get, begins me to the next question, and, okay. and maybe we can get into my paranoia more <laughs> in detail. I remember it well. Okay, so. By the way, uh, for the listeners, when Andy says he remembers it well, Andy, what cla class of Trium you were a class of? I, we graduated in 2005. I think it was the third class. 2005. So, yeah. So, so, so um, one of the best vintages, I'm telling you, one of the best. <laughs> so, um, look, I want, I want you to just kind of imagine that we have this ubiquitous earth monitoring, surveillance, even high-speed internet if, if we need it. Mm -hmm. um, what based in space? Mm -hmm. Okay, can you talk about kind of potential utopian visions and maybe some things that maybe keep you up at night worrying about this? Because it seems to me when I read about this space, in this space, you get mm -hmm. the kind of promoters who see right. almost everything that the the industry does as you know beneficial for humankind, and we're going to you know infinity and beyond and then on the on the other side you get people are saying no you know they're going to track our every movement and no opposition will you know we have monopolies and we have corporate entities that will be be controlling the stars and all of this stuff so somewhere in between there i'm just wondering what are you what makes you optimistic and what kind of things worry you so you talk about utopian visions that I, I think you're talking more dystopian visions but at any rate um so, I mean, it seems to me we've crossed that Rubicon. I, I mean, Google started out with, um, what is it? Their, their slogan was do no evil. And, and I, they genuinely intended not to do any evil, but they have become, if you will, in, in some respects, at least a sort of big brother, but we signed on willingly. So I, I'm not sure it's gonna change that much. And, and in terms of tracking people, um, you know, we, the easiest way to track people is through electronic signals. And of course, we know now that some segments have learned how to turn off those signals. And um, it, in terms of, you know, actually tracking individuals that we want to track, we know how to do that, right? We've already demonstrated that we can pick out someone and 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 track. I mean, we, we have this 
wonderful play-by-play of how we we sort of screwed up finding people that drove their car to various suspicious locations. Yeah. So yeah. obviously we assumed that they were nefarious characters. And, you know, with a single missile from literally central Florida, killed people that were in Afghanistan. Um, and I don't know, you know, that was an intelligence failure, not a, not a um, information gathering failure. And so I don't know that having a ubiquitous constellation is going to change that. And um, so I guess I'm not that worried about the marginal harm, if you will, of a ubiquitous um, earth imaging system. What I, what I, I, if I look at the other side of the coin, what I think potentially you get out of it is um, persistent observation of other phenomenon, ways of gathering real-time information that we don't really know what, what you can do with it. Um, but it's not gonna be at the, at the level where you're picking out individuals. But I think what's happening today is we've already got commercial satellites that are gathering lots of different kinds of information, whether it's radar, whether it's hyperspectral, just traditional multispectral, even panchromatic um, radio emissions. And I think the really interesting things are going to happen when you start combining these different data streams into information products that will have, a, I think, a, a genuine positive effect in the economy. But that's not to say that that same information can be used for nefarious reasons. It's, you know, what's, what's good information for investors looking at at understanding with high precision um, what agricultural output is going to look like could be used um, by someone else to starve out a country. You yeah. know, so I, but I think I, I think we kind of cracked that seal a long time ago. I'm, I'm not sure you can put the genie back in the bottle to mix metaphors. I largely agree. I, I think we'll, we'll leave that as a side for a second. I, th- what I was thinking, one of the things that that worries me is let's say that the technical issue of the bandwidth can get solved and let's say that it becomes cheaper to have space-based nodes in a net in a global network than it does towers on on earth and let's say we become ever more reliant on something like starlink or something like these that will connects all of us in these in the future of the internet of things and we have self-driving cars, et cetera, et cetera, all of these relying on very precise space imaging, mm-hmm. then, then these networks uh, in space become extremely uh, a kind of mission critical things to defend. Okay, yeah. And they become a very big uh, juicy target for someone who wants to disrupt all the things on which we have become dependent on this network in space. Now whether it is more dangerous to have such a network arrayed across space in near orbit or whether the the necessarily decentralized nature of earth-based systems yeah. make it more or less risky i don't know but it seems to me one of the things that i would worry about is it it creates an incentive for both defensive and offensive weapon weaponry in space. Um, uh, and again, not that that's not there already, right. um, but that it that, that the more you become dependent on these things, the more 
you start to want to protect them and the more they become a target if you want to disrupt. Yeah, so uh, we're already there, I mean, in military terms. And, it's, and we're there in a very um, challenging and unstable point right now because you've got this asymmetry that the United States is completely, the United States military is completely and totally dependent upon space-based systems and not a large number of them, which you know, only makes it more attractive to knock some of them out. And because we are the only truly global power and it makes a very attractive target for China. I mean, let's just be honest. And it, this is an unstable period because at some point in the future, um, I, I'm sure many of my colleagues would chafe at the notion, but at some point in the future, China is going to have a relative balance of space-based capabilities. They'll probably never be as good as we are, but they'll have early warning satellites. They will have a global presence that they need to support with global intelligence, with global communications. They, they're already doing their own GPS system. They will become equally dependent upon those systems. When you get to that point, now you can start talking about stable deterrence in space, which is, of course, what's had what's worked incredibly well um, with nuclear weapons. I mean, we have it's sort of remarkable, in spite of your dystopian paranoid um, proclivities, <laughs> that that humanity created weapons that were capable of destroying itself, and we didn't do it. And the reason we didn't do it was deterrence. Yeah, and, and we are in a situation right now from a, a deterrence theory standpoint where it's pretty unstable. And that that does worry me because yeah. until we get to the point where there's some stability between the US and China in space, it's the US is going to be um, a little bit twitchy, let's say about it. And that is where you get to real crisis instability, which is which is a real danger. It's a yeah. very real danger. Yeah. And you you that's where things like the US Space Force comes in and yeah, so I mean, which, the Space Force didn't really do that much. I mean, maybe it improved sort of promotion processes, but I don't I, I actually think the 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 incentives, the simple name change created for China to say, now, look, those guys really are yeah. in an arms race. Yeah. And 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 the trouble is when you declare a race. You better be ready to race, and it's not at all clear that we're really ready to do that. So I kind of look at it, and I go, "I'm just, I, I, I get why we did it. I'm just not sure we really thought it through that well." Yeah. Well, the spiffy uniforms, you know, that they're, they're hard to turn down. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so, um, so that leads me to the the, the next the next kind of big question about these more traditional communication roles, imaging roles. Mm -hmm. How big of a problem is space rubbish? Because yeah. this is the other thing. If you yeah. start slinging up 50,000 satellites into near-Earth orbit, doesn't that just make it even more difficult to manage because things are going to start to bash into each other more and yes. more? That's a, no, it's a massive problem. And how do, you, how do you distinguish between something accidentally bashing into something and something not accidentally bashing into something? Um... We can, I mean, with better with with better space-based situational awareness, you can. I mean, if if you you can detect if a satellite is actually making a movement to collide with something, and so you can probably figure that out. What worries me more is the inevitability 
of two dead objects colliding into each other, creating more debris. Yeah. And at some point you get the Kepler effect in which you get a chain reaction where all of the mass of everything in that orbital band, you know, potentially turns into much tinier particles of debris and makes it, you know, in a worst case scenario, your mis most dystopian view, impossible to launch through, which I think it, it's hard to get there. But the, the danger of this is, is very, very real. And, and when you've got 50,000 satellites, um, and, you know, I think Starlink's reliability has improved, but for the first few hundred satellites, they were looking at 10% failure rates. And when yeah. a satellite is dead, how do you get it out of there? You know, we can, technically we know how to do this, but it gets back to the social sciences problem. We do not have a clue how to create an economic and political and regulatory regime that removes the satellites. If you can't figure out yeah. how to get somebody to pay for it. Yeah, who's liable for that? The liability is clear. The, the, the Outer Space Treaty establishes liability. The launching state is liable for that activity, but they're still not going to pay for removing it. But yeah, that's the 67 uh, treaty, right? Yes. So yeah. 1967, but the we're, we may get to it, but the, the problem with that 1967 treaty is that it only envisions state actors, right? So you say that the state that launched it is liable, it is. but if it's a private company within the state that launched it, what's the legal culpability of that entity versus the state it's up to this i mean the, the theory behind it i'm not saying it works because when we when we wrote the outer space treaty there were two nations and the notion of, of private activities in space was at least contemplated but i don't think anyone really thought it was realistic so i mean that and the the minutes of it are clear that we talked about it the u.s wanted it considered the soviets didn't it wasn't in there so the way it works now is you have a launching state and it is up to that state. That state accepts liability for any actions of that vehicle. And so it's up to that state to regulate private entities. It's not okay. hard to imagine how weak that regime is. Yeah, well, so I was just going to say, let's say a state says, uh, we're going to do that. So what's what's the enforcement mechanism? There isn't one. Okay. No, so there that's, isn't. A, that's a problem. It is a problem. And, <laughs> and, you know, it really gets down to who is going to pay for it. Yeah. And, and, you know, the people, the, there's a sort of outer space law crew. I mean, a, a perfectly reasonable discipline, but they just say, well, what you just need is an international regime, a, a treaty. I, when was the last time the United States signed a treaty? When was the, what is your expectation of the United States being willing to sign a treaty which would sacrifice their sovereignty over space dominance. I just, yeah. that just doesn't make sense. With binding arbitration on some court that it would be acceptable to all parties. That's a, that's a hard one to get to. It anyway, is. we might talk about that when we talk about the regulatory environment. I, I, before we move on to, to that, I, I want to just spend a couple minutes on uh, this kind of what seems to be really flourishing now. People are very excited about is space tourism, essentially mm -hmm. these kind of tourism with, with either just rides up into space uh, or um, eventually some sort of hotels in space or something like this. And a lot of people argue, again, these are the kind of proponents, these are the cheerleaders, and they, they say we're at this like tipping point, this great tipping point, and that in our kind of lifetime, normal people, not people like Bezos and other people, but kind of it will be within the economic reach of normal people for kind of a trip of a lifetime to be able to uh, go into space. And I'm just wondering, 
do you buy that? Is that is this where we're heading? Uh, maybe well, not sure, at some point. Yeah. At some point, you will. But the question is really, how big is that market? Hmm. You know, how big is that? People like to talk about. Um, well, it's like going to Mount Everest. Well, how many people go to Mount Everest in a year? On a thousand people. That does not sound like a market to me that sustains you know a multi-billion-dollar industry. Yeah. So I I think it's going to happen. I I just one we do not know what that market looks like. But even if you kind of project out. It's kind of hard to get to numbers that aren't trivial. You know, when you're talking about other parts of space, putting 50,000 satellites up, that's where the real center of mass is. And so to me, um, again, I'm, I, I don't speak for the rest of my colleagues in this business who love space tourism. I mean, I, I like it. I got nothing against it. I just think it's a sideshow. Yeah, I think it. I, I can completely understand that view, but it also seems like for the commercialization side, particularly for the space to space stuff that we talk that we're going to talk about maybe soon, mm -hmm. a lot of it seems to rely on this idea that we're going to be servicing large numbers of people that will be in space. And the only way I see that large numbers of people in space getting there to be therefore having a market to serve mm -hmm. that group, but but it seems to me only kind of affordable tourism but like you said it, it then becomes so massively expensive now now maybe through time the cost will go so far down that it will be a kind of mass industry but it's hard to imagine let's say even a kind of number like let's say 100,000 people a year visiting space that's that's maybe it's a lack of imagination on my part maybe the people would you know people in the 60s might have been thinking about the internet in the same way what you can look up anything at any time and get any information you want you're mad that will never happen so may, maybe i'm uh, you know 20 years from now 30 years from now we'll dig out this podcast and i'll sound ridiculous but it just seems to me unlikely that you're going to have that number and if you don't have that number what happens to the justification for having all of this space based manufacturing Oh, well, um, the space-based manufacturing will build things in space. So there are things that you can do in space that require very large structures. So let's start with the easy stuff. Um, having very large antennas, let's just say kilometer antennas at, in geosynchronous give you the capability to actually do a, a, an incredible amount of collection of electronic data, give you an incredible ability to do radar at like sub millimeter, which does get back to your dystopian vision, maybe. But there are things there are things that you can do in space that that support space activities that that are really, um, I think, that add tremendous value. I mean, then turn the turn the telescope around the other direction and look at stars, and now and now if you've got kilometer. Um, you know, sort of class mirrors, you are really looking very far with very high precision. Um, and then you can always turn to space-based solar power, which is, you know, another one of the dreams of space. Yeah. And at some point that starts to make sense, but if it's really going to make sense, because to make solar space-based solar power realistic, you are talking about these sort of kilometer class structures that you that you have to build in space. So those kinds of things are real activities in space and you're gonna have lots and lots of robots and you're gonna need people to fix the robots. So that that is a market that would drive, it's not tourism, it's it's literally space commerce, but it, it 
is that space to space? I don't know, because the power is coming to Earth. Yeah. So, I mean, and those things are um, they're plausible. Um, I mean, there is a lot of stuff we talk about in space that just flat out doesn't make any sense. But that does make sense. It, I don't know if that's going to happen. But I think, you know, building structures in space, you know, sending up basically the raw material and, and using additive manufacturing in space to build massive structures has a lot of utility. Yeah, no, I, I can completely get that. And, and again, this kind of gets us into the next topic, this space for space, because like we said, it's just too expensive to put stuff up there. I, I, I read somewhere, I can't remember the figure, maybe you know, but it's astronomically expensive to bring like a liter of water up to space. I can't remember what the cost was, but it- Well, know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's in the range of, I think we're down to maybe $5,000 a kilogram. Okay. So 5,000 dollars for a liter of water right um yeah so so if you can figure out to get a you know hook onto some comet and mine the comet for water and sell the water to the space station then you've well, got a massive a there's massive amounts of water on the moon we know uh, on the moon okay so there you go yeah there's a lot of stuff we don't know about it but but again water on the moon we i'm back to this kind of question of i understand building stuff that will do stuff for us on earth and it's it's too expensive to build it on earth blast it up into space and then look back right the rest of the stuff looking out as you said turn the mirror around it's hard for me to say see where the money is in that there isn't i mean the the money there there isn't money in science i mean science is like it's sort of the um the modern version of pyramids or art wealthy nations can afford to do space science and they do it because they can, not because there's necessarily an economic return. The only economic returns from space right now are communications and remote sensing, right? The rest of the stuff, planetary science, all of that is great and wonderful. Yeah. But it's it's a luxury that the United States can afford. Europe can sort of kind of afford it. And it's not clear that really China can afford it. Yeah. Well, Andy, it's really interesting to hear you say that because that, that aligns with kind of my image of things. But again... When you read a lot of literature in this space, people are very, very excited about Mars and Mars settlements and building stuff on the moon to help people get to Mars and how they're going to construct space, things in space to, to but, go to but Mars. I mean, think about Mars. The thing about Mars is, look, we spend, the United States alone spends roughly $10 billion a year on human space life. And if... Um, and if you took that hundred billion and actually focused it on going to Mars, you know, you're going to Mars is probably, I mean, people like to throw on stupid numbers. It's probably, it's hundreds of billions of dollars to go to Mars. And so if you focus that $10 billion on, let's say you got the rest of the world to match it and you got $20 billion, it's not hard to imagine being able to go to Mars and having a small settlement on Mars, the small permanent settlement, sort of like, the South Pole, Amundsen, Scott. But it's not, that's not crazy. Um, I, I do, one of the things that I like about Mars is it really does address some really fundamental questions. You know, first, by living on Mars, you can demonstrate that the human race is capable of living on another planet, which is not a useless thing to do. It's not simple either, because you, when you live on Mars, you are going to have to live off of the land on Mars. And that's that's a useful thing to learn. The, the other thing that's probably more important is we'll find out something about whether or not there's life in the universe. If we find signs of life, if we find clear indications of life on Mars, then you have to look out in the universe and go, okay, it's gotta be out there somewhere. Um, 
if you find nothing on on the one place we well there, there are places that are better for for life in our solar system um, some of the jovian moons for example but if you find nothing on mars you got to say well you know maybe we are alone it's entirely possible both both hypotheses are impossible and, and that's a fundamental existential question of humanity and it would be a good thing to to know but it's not critical for our survival yeah. and so again it, it is great art but it's truly great art i mean it's you know it's it's art that more people appreciate than a than the mona lisa probably okay um and so i there's value in it but it is value as a luxury good and interesting interesting so you see it kind of a, as an aesthetic uh aesthetic work of art like a perf performance art almost that uh, rich rich countries can do in order to fulfill some aesthetic value that they might have because on the science side right all the things that you said on the science side remote vehicles um non uh non ha you know yeah. the, the going through the ri the risk the money the time, the psychological, everything of getting somebody, yeah. a person to Mars seems it, to me to be, you know, it, it must increase the cost exponentially. Must oh, it do. does. It does. And there's some marginal benefit to having people there as opposed to robots. I mean, look at how long it takes perseverance to cover 100 meters, right? And you get sure. a person out there with a man you know, and a little geological hammer. There's, there's, a, there's a marginal benefit. But you're right. Ultimately, with robotic devices, we will figure out the question of whether there's there are clear signs of life on Mars. And so, um, you know, one of the arguments that, that some people have made is if we find clear signs of life on Mars, then why send people? And that's fair. But I think what you can't ignore is the is that in the United States as a nation, we have decided with a great deal of political consensus and, and pretty stable consensus to spend $10 billion a year on human spaceflight. And so the question I come up with is, what's the best value you get out of that? Now, by the way, it's not, number one on my list isn't going to Mars, it's going to the moon. It's going to the moon to do the advanced work you need to do on the moon in order to, in order to build the infrastructure to support a, a space-based economy. That's number one on my list. And that has, that has real social utility, I think. Okay. So you go to the moon and this would largely in your view um build as you said the infrastructure to support the space-based economy mm -hmm. the space-based economy would be overwhelmingly for earth earth uh i don't know supplying earth with information power whatever it might be it's not it's not the mirror the other way around because as you said the science part is is not where the money is so as i understand it with the water on the moon, you can get hydrogen, which you need for fuel, and you get the oxygen, which you need to help the people that are doing the, the, the mining. What about the construction of the stuff there? I, I'm assuming it's some sort of uh, three-dimensional printing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but what do you use as the, can you use moon dust to create these other things? Oh, or there, are there, is the minerals on the moon sufficient to be able to construct and print metals, for example? So we don't know that, but almost certainly. I mean, that one of the interesting things about the moon is it's uh, it collects meteorites, and meteorites contain lots of interesting stuff, including lots and lots of metals. So the the raw materials are there. You can do a lot just with the regular sort of 
basalt-like regolith. And, and you know, you come up with other ways of using bonding agents to hold it together. But we actually understand how to build a lot of structures there. But I think you can find almost anything you want. I think, I don't know this. I think you can find almost anything you need to build just about anything um, on the moon. I mean, there are things that, you know, maybe there's not a whole lot of carbon, That's then that's an issue. Um, but um, you can find most of what you want to build almost anything. And if you, and if, if all you do is reduce the up mass requirements to to ten percent, yeah, five percent. That's that's it's a big. huge saving. Yeah. So in in the Andy Aldrin world, you would have the moon as a kind of a factory mm -hmm. uh, facility to produce things for relatively near Earth orbit yeah. activities and repair, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. Let's use that. Let's start with that. So, and I want to talk about the role of of the private sector and and how that complicates the policy area. Uh, so, I think it's important for people to realize that, and and most people probably do from the very early, early, early days of NASA, it was always a public private partnership, right? You had mm -hmm. suppliers from the private sector, places like Boeing and et cetera, that would provide the the they were the, they were the subcontractors. Mm -hmm. And NASA was the buyer, right? And as I understand it, most of these contracts were fixed cost. So you you would have uh, fixed cost plus. So they would fixed, you well, they're fixed price, fixed right. price. Well, plus. actually, a better way of talking about it, it's a cost based contract. So cost, cost plus, cost like cost a cost plus, plus contract, right? right? So whatever your cost says, we'll we'll pay you, you know, seven percent or eight, whatever is deemed the correct and non obscene margin of profit. Well, and they're don't underestimate the power of tweaking those oh, sure. knobs with respect yeah. to how much profit you get. And of course, in that, in those kind of contracts, of course, you are better off expanding and including anything in the cost base that you possibly can, right? As a, yeah, as, a way. as is the government incentivized to reduce that. So yeah, so they, I, I, mean, I got a, it. There's a tension there. There's a tension, but what we I think what's clear is all of the risk in that case was on the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so all the risk is on the government, the, the future utility of whatever is being produced. Um, there was no risk that there wouldn't be a market for what they were producing. There was no risk that they were going to spend a bunch of money or, and it was going to be above a certain amount that they said that they, I, you know, if they say, I can produce this satellite for 100 million and it turned out to be 200 million, well, the government was there to to make sure that that, that the there was a bridge. Part. But like I said, there, there is some risk in that just, so if you overrun on something and 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 massively, and, and it's clear that you're doing a lousy job running the program, your award fee, the amount of profit you make on it reduces dra dramatically, often to zero. Okay. And if you're making zero profit on, on a billion dollar program, you're in deep kimchi. So there is there is some there's there's still some risk, but it's still it is a it, you are absolutely correct, and you're talking about the right thing to talk about public private partnerships and the balance of risk between government and industry. And a cost plus contract puts the takes the the slider and turns it all the way as far as we can go to putting the risk on government. Okay, and then the contract structures began to change, as I understand it, and they became more. Well, why don't you describe how they changed? Because they changed yeah. in a way that they transferred 
almost all the risks to the private entity. Yeah. So let me go through it's, um There's a really instructive case that I lived, which was the what was called the the launch vehicle program, what became the evolved event expendable launch vehicle. And so the EELV program was conceived of in the late 90s. And the late 90s was an interesting period of time because at the time um, it was the last wave of space commercialization. We were going to darken the sky with satellites, just like we're talking about today. One company, Teledesic, which was headed by, not headed, but funded by Bill Gates and Craig McCaw, um, was going to build 840 satellites. There was a total of, I think it was like 1,200 satellites that were being planned to go out there and $66 billion of investment which now sounds almost trivial. But what happened is the launch company said, this is great, you know, because we're going to launch all these things. And, and the Air Force picked up on this and said, that's great. We need a new launch vehicle. So let's do it this way. We'll give you a little bit of money. And so what they did is they gave each of the contractors half a billion dollars and said, you guys build launch vehicles, knowing full well that it was going to cost 500, excuse me, about $5 billion dollars Oh, no, I take that back. Probably two to three billion dollars each for the contractors to build the launch vehicles. The government will give you half a billion. You pay the rest and the government will buy some launches, but not a lot. You're really going to have to find more launches. And Boeing and Lockheed thought they were each going to get about 40 launches a year. And so they built their businesses around that model. Well, the 40 launches a year turned out to be four. Right. And they've got just the debt service, they're not even close to covering that, um, but you've got fixed costs of maybe a billion dollars or so a year that they're not, you're not covering with four launches. So Boeing and Lockheed said, we're done. We're out of this business. And um, the government said, wait a minute, we need your launches. And so <laughs> they, they effectively negotiated a, what was almost a bankruptcy. They said, All right, the money you've lost, you've lost. That money is gone but we'll restructure your contracts so that you can be, it's basically to a cost plus contract because okay. we need the launches. The interesting thing that happened with that is now the government has taken on all the risk because industry before was taking on most of the cost risk. They were taking on a huge amount of the market risk, the revenue risk, and it didn't work and they failed, but the government couldn't give up on the capability. So they, they moved the pendulum as far to the other side as they could almost. And it was not completely cost plus. The, the basic deal they had was the government would pay the fixed cost of running their launch programs and they would buy launch vehicles at marginal cost, fixed price. So it was a hybrid, but still the risk was massively shifted over to the government. What happens as a result of that? Well, then you had the political backlash and what happened was now NASA in particular said, we don't like this deal. And so NASA stood up SpaceX. I mean, yeah, NASA yeah. was, NASA funded SpaceX. NASA yeah. took on the risk to fund SpaceX. And so it was a, a really interesting dialectic because um, you know, now we've kind of shifted to, I think a place where the risk is pretty balanced and SpaceX and ULA and probably Blue Origin will end up with pretty much fixed price contracts for launch services. And that's kind of where that it should be. Yeah. Well, it's interesting also, as I read, Andy, I don't know if this is, is correct, but one of the key moments was that SpaceX 
publish their budgets. Oh, publish their costs. Yeah, and that and that this this supposedly um, created a whole bunch of new market players who looked at the costs and said, "Well, we can do it for less than that." That's a story that's told. Do you think that that narrative is no, is not accurate? Because because you didn't get new players coming into the market till much later. Okay, and the way that market was structured, and for the most part, for bigger launch vehicles. It, it, there's just a very limited number of customers. And so the fact that SpaceX put its numbers out there made for great press. And I think what it did was it enabled SpaceX to encourage a conversation about how much more expensive ULA was. And depending on how, well, I mean, ULA was far more expensive than the advertised prices for SpaceX, far more expensive. And so that created a wonderful conversation for SpaceX to have and, and a justification for the government buying more SpaceX launches. Gotcha. But I don't think it created a bunch of new players in the market. That didn't come until much later. Okay. So NASA, if we if we just kind of finish up this kind of historical uh, circle, NASA went from being the buyer using these subcontractors now, now essentially the current business models of the private sector, they still rely on NASA and state actors for the demand side, right? Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't exist without them. So this idea that these are purely private entities that somehow are making their way through the world based on their only on their wit and their expertise, this is not true. That this it's no. deeply embedded in a, a state of, at a public-private partnership that without that guaranteed state demand, they would they would collapse overnight. Absolutely, that's absolutely correct. But you you know you can think of it in terms of there's cost risk and there's there's um, revenue risk, market risk. And so industry has accepted the cost risk. Government has taken on the market risk. And when you look at what, you know, what fundamentally supported SpaceX's development, it was the government guaranteeing, NASA guaranteeing launches. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But it's, it's, that runs counter to most people's intuitive understanding of the rise of the private sector in space. It does. Yes, because it's it it is not it, they are not free from state involvement. They no. they would die tomorrow without. There, there is there is not a single launch company, and I would almost argue, well, there's not a single launch company which is a purely commercial endeavor. There are very few space companies that are purely commercial. There are some. There are some, but. Um, and yeah. What proportions of their launches, what proportion of the launches of these private entities go to the defense payloads? Do you know? Oh. Yeah, it's probably what well, it varies. So for SpaceX, um, defense payloads are probably maybe not that much more than 20, 30%. For okay. ULA, it's probably 70%. Um, but both, both SpaceX and ULA um, depend on DOD launches because they they tend to make a lot more money on them. DOD, I mean, but if you have to think about it this way, that um, let's, for the intelligence community, for example, they're putting up a spacecraft that's worth billions of dollars. And not only is it worth billions of dollars, but it may take five years, 10 years to replace that capability. And so for them, if they have to spend another 20, $50 million to buy 10% more confidence in that launch, that's, that's a no-brainer because 
you know, at, at the end of the day, if you're running the launch program and you have a failure, you don't get promoted. Right. And so if you can get budget for another 20 or $50 million for a launch, and you can make the case, even if you have a launch failure, I did everything I possibly could, then maybe you have a better chance. But the, the, the incentive structure for the Department of Defense is typically to overpay for launches. So they overpay for increased redundancy of systems? No, it's not, it's not redundant. No. The, the vehicles don't change. Okay. They don't change. What changes the amount of analysis that you do? So okay. if, you, if you've got, if you've got a, an intelligence community customer and you have um, a, a connector which has, had, had a, a slight data anomaly in the factory two generations after that lot of connectors, the, the DOD may say, you know what, we want you to go dig into that and, and spend $500,000 gotcha. understanding whether there's any connection between those two connectors. Gotcha. Okay. That's an interesting myth to be, uh, that well, little irony, bubble to be popped. One of the ironies is, I mean, this is Clayton Christensen playing out in spades because what ULA did was everything that their customer wanted and their customer wanted more and more and more reliability, more and more mission assurance, which meant more and more cost, which opened the door for SpaceX to come in and capture their market but at, at a lower price by providing a lower level of service. It's just, um, you know, Clayton Christensen, well, I think it is a perfect example. I don't know if he was, you know, is, is actually not rolling over in his grave, but smiling in delight from up above <laughs> it, but it was a perfect, perfect um, example. It is. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's talk about the, we, with the, with the time we have left, let's talk a little bit about these policy areas, the kind of social side of it that is interesting. And just have some rapid fire questions here because I, I, I just am interested in, in your opinion here. So let's think about these policy areas. We've touched on it a little bit. Let's talk about risk and liability. And in, in particular, I want to know right now, who gets to decide whether a flight is safe enough for an individual or an action in space is safe enough for an individual? So there's things on earth we can't do, right? We can't we can't hire somebody and say, I want you to play Russian roulette and I'm going to bet on the outcome because we can say that that's just not, it's not legal, but who decides what amount of risk is acceptable in the space environment? So let's for say for a tourist who wants to fly for a tourist, or let's say you have your moon, we have our moon factory, right? And I, I sign up to go to the moon factory. I, I signed up to go to the Aldrin moon production facility. And who gets to decide? Oh, as an individual. As an individual. You know, is it the country? What laws regulate what yeah. I can decide to do in space? Yeah, well, so it goes back to the Outer Space Treaty. If you're flying on a U.S. vehicle from U.S. soil, it's really clear it's U.S. responsibility. In practice right now, anybody who's going into space is flying under U.S. regulations. And so the FAA regulates it. What's interesting about it is they regulate it on the basis of what they call informed consent which means the person flying into space accepts all the risk and, and they are supposed to be well-informed of it. Therefore, they have no claim of liability against yeah, the launching yeah. company. 
And so it's not a particularly strong regime, but it's the one we're, we're operating on. It's interesting because you can't do that on some things. You can't say, I'm going to play Russian roulette and I sign away my rights for this, or I'm going to play, I don't know, Squid Game. And I, I've, I've signed my right away to play Squid right. Game or whatever it is. You can't do that, right? But if we, if we thought of kind of the Aldrin Moon facility, it's not a country thing. It's Aldrin Inc., right? Yeah, but it, no, but remember that the, the Outer Space Treaty confers that responsibility on the launching state. And so it will be, I mean, given what, if I'm flying on a US vehicle, it will be the FAA. But even, even if the launch. state doesn't launch it, so it's an Absolutely. FAA question. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, I mean, but the state has no role in liability when you get on an airplane, but right. that you have a regulatory agency. Now, when, the thing, the difference is if you, the airplane crashes, you sue Boeing or you sue, you sue um, American Airlines, what have you, right? And and you're not going to doing and you you'll be able to do that in space launch too. Okay, I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, but there seems to be something there about who has standing and who has not. But but you gave an no, answer. Only agents, well, I mean, the the question gets more interesting if if you, if you launch a settle, if you launch and you go to the Aldrin um, moon base, and you sneak off and you go to um, the Huawei moon base and bash up a bunch of stuff yeah now at that point it may be the u.s government that's liable for your actions and so the u.s government would want to be very careful that they didn't send somebody up to the aldrin base that was going to crawl over to the huawei base and bash things up gotcha so that's that sets up my next question perfectly so okay. we have the aldrin base and the huawei base now who gets to decide what who owns what up there because as i understand the uh, space treaty outer space treaty it says that no country can colonize anything in space. That doesn't say colonize. No country can own. Okay, so no. Okay, and so that says nothing about colonization. But if you do have an interest. I mean, that's a, exactly the right case to bring up. Um, so um, it's not clear. It, it's not clear. Nor do I think it's necessarily a big problem right now. I mean, at some point you're going to have to figure out some of the property rights. But let's figure out what the real disputes are. What it sets up, though is in practice, the US is not going to create a base which is directly adjacent to a Chinese base. They're gonna have some kind of norms of behavior where you stay a kilometer away, 10 kilometers away, 100 kilometers away. I can see, a, like I can see the state actor doing that, but let's say you said that um, big meteorites hit the moon all the time. Right. And you find a big old nice meteorite that has everything you need in it. It's big. Right. right and right. you set up Aldrin Enterprises on one side of it. And, the, and overnight, you notice uh, Huawei Enterprises coming in or, or, or the opposite. And you say, right. whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is our meteorite. Now, if I'm a private company, I want to know before I invest the billions that I'm going to need to set up that I, I have ownership of this, that some, nobody can come just like on earth. I, I want to know if, I, if I'm going to try to, to extract value from something that no one else can come in yeah. and take it. So where we are right now is the U.S. government has passed laws. Luxembourg has passed laws. I'm not sure anybody cares about the latter so much, but they've passed laws legal. I mean, this is legislation. This isn't simply policy that, that say the US government will support your claim on those resources. So now in, the, in this scenario, what you would end up with is a, because 
I am there as a U.S. person under the, the, the Outer Space Treaty and the U.S. has borne responsibility for it and has given me license to go mine those resources. And China is disputing that. What you would end up with is essentially an international dispute that would have to be settled through the diplomatic channels. And well, those it wouldn't have to be settled by diplomatic channels, would it? It would. But it I mean, could be could, settled by. Words, you just, if, if they steal my, if they steal my asteroid, pretty much, you know, I'm, um, I'm pretty much out the asteroid. But and the and the diplomats will argue it, about it forever. But um, but but what war is diplomacy by other means, right? So there there could be. The, the, I, I think what the, I'm. I, I think the likelihood that I mean the likelihood that that China would allow one of its entities or accept one of its entities, even if it's a private citizen stealing from another entity, particularly the United States and encouraging that kind of a dispute. Um, no, I get it, I get it, Andy. I, I mean, I'm pushing way out, so I'm sorry. No, I mean, I'm, but because China would police their people and the US would police their people. Yeah, but then it, we're back to this point where if you're, let's, uh, you're right that you say it's the state that's ultimately responsible and therefore they're responsible for the behaviors of the people. Therefore, it's really hard for me to think about these enterprises being private because yeah. it seems to me that they are automatically completely enmeshed in state control, uh, state uh, norms, state laws, et cetera, that, that they oh, are not. You do that. You do that when you drive on the road. Yeah, I think maybe the, the, the better analogy is we do that when we, we let's say, fly across international space, right? In, 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 yeah. in not, not space, outer space, but inner space. So when we're flying, we have these kind of norms that we coordinate air traffic control and things like this. And I suppose there's an, there, there, you can take those to arbitration. But I just wonder, so for example, the Artemis Accords, right? As I understand it. So for those of the listeners, the Artemis Accords are kind of, would you say a framework or a next generation treaty or the starting of a kind of agreement? It could be all of the above. It's it's a framework, which is, um, you know, on the spectrum of international legal certainty is not very far from nothing. So, okay. I mean, it, there's something there. But it's, it's way short of, of a treaty that, you know, has gone through the process of ratification by the legislatures and governments, what have you. Yeah. So and doesn't have China or Russia. No, I mean it's it's frankly something that is set up to recognize what is going to be a um, a geostrategic competition on the moon. And yeah. it's, you know, there's very little real estate on the moon that is greatly valuable, but the bits and pieces which are sitting on the edge of craters that have sunlight full time sitting on top of a sitting at the edge of a crater which has shade all of the time and therefore has massive amounts of water in it. Those are incredibly valuable pieces of real estate and the US and China will compete for those. Yeah. And that's, I just don't know how the rules of those, that competition will be worked out. I guess that's that's what we don't know. They, no, we don't. But I, I think I hesitate to say what we need to do is create legal regimes in advance of the problem because I think the near-term solution is a US company a U.S. licensed launch, however that happens, goes there and it's up to the U.S. to regulate those people. And so my uh, my actions should come under 
force of legal of, of the U.S. legal system. So if I steal something, I should be held liable. Look, as long as as long as they're state actors, then that's one thing. If they're private actors, I think you start to get a different situation because there I would want the regulatory regime and the legal regime in place first, because if I'm going to invest all of this money, I'm going to want it protected in some way. That's fair enough. I mean, it's a fair point. And I think at some point um, we see that. What I don't want to see is that as you put a legal regime in place before, U.S. is trying to give industry as much protection as they can. And what they're saying is that because we recognize your right to utilize these resources, we will defend that right in the same way we defend your rights of international commerce. And, and how long is that going to last? I don't know. But um, it's it, it's not as feeble a regime as we kind of make it out to okay. be. And maybe we'll take the form of, you know, we have the law of the sea, which governs how you mine these deep water nodules and who owns them and et cetera. But that's a that's a treaty, a full-blown treaty. It's a full-blown uh, treaty. And frankly, it's restricted undersea mining. Maybe that's a good thing. But because one of the requirements is if you mine undersea nodules, you have to give a share of those proceeds to the common heritage of mankind. Yeah. It's tended and, to damage business cases. Well, again, we're back to the same case. I mean, yes, well, so who owns the moon? Well, but so the U.S. has made it clear. If you if you take resources and use them in space, it, it, it sort of, it begs the question. It really does beg the question, what happens if you bring these resources back? But if you use them in space, they're yours to use for economic purposes. And that the U.S. government will defend your right to use those. Um, there is no tax, um, as some some space lawyers envision, that in return for having the right to use these resources, you should give a portion of these resources to the interests of the common interests of mankind. And um, the U.S. government is saying you don't have to pay that tax. They may yeah. the U.S. government may tax you at some point. That's fine. I mean, I think that that's what the hegemon would say in that position. I, absolutely. Because absolutely. yeah, they'd say. It's ours. We're going to do this. If you don't right. like come it, come and take it away if you want to. Come and take it away. No, and I'm I mean, just saying, as you said, it's an unstable equilibrium right now. It is. It and is. when you get more and more competition for these scarce resources, these primo locations on the edge of these craters, I, I then just we think- will develop, Then we will develop, once we establish norms of behavior, then you can start developing legal regimes to enforce the norms of behavior. But I'm not sure we really even know what the norms of behavior are yet. Yeah. So once all the primo spots are taken, then we could establish some norms. That, no, that could, I'm just that could well be the case. That, all right. that could well be the case. But, uh, you know, as and I I actually, I, I'll go beyond that. That's probably going to be the case. And, and it won't matter what kind of legal regime, because would the U.S. sign up to a legal regime which restricted its rights? Well, look, I, I think if we look at how we have done as humans managing our own commons resources on Earth, no. um, if we look at you know how we manage uh, global fisheries, um, the answer is no. Yeah, the answer is probably it's not going to be great, um, right. and it will be a function of power. And that's where again my more paranoid side says it it works fine when you have a very strong hegemon because the, what the hegemon says goes, but when you get challengers, then you're gonna have a situation that well, is But bear difficult. in mind, if it, it gets unstable, 
when you have when you have a balance of power between two countries yeah it's I that transition period regime, which is where i would like to see it yeah it's when you get really multipolar and you have bad actors um which it, it you know is probably inevitable um and, and at some point we will need to create a, a legal regime yeah or when it transitions from a sole actor or a sole hegemon to a bipolar or multipolar world it's that tr it's the transition periods that are tough the transitions are dangerous less dangerous on the moon than they are in, in, in orbit i i think yeah probably you're right yeah probably i i agree with that all right a couple quick questions here i want to be uh, cautious with your time so yeah i'm also running out of computer power too yeah i want to just say uh, uh shout out to the aldrin foundation Thank you, uh, you guys do a lot of great work. You have the Center for Space Entrepreneurship and the Aldrin uh, Space Institution that does research. Um, the Aldrin Foundation, for those of you interested, we'll put the link on the show notes as well. It does amazing work with schools, uh, bringing uh, STEM kind of based uh, topics, uh, making them alive and really interesting for people. So I looked into that a little bit, Andy, for the show, and I just think what you're doing is fantastic. So I did. I have one more shout out to do. I've, we are just standing up a new online space studies program at Embry-Riddle University, which is the premier online aerospace education university in the world. And it's it, it's going to be an amazing program. We're actually just starting this year. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I get to work from home. Oh, great. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. So final question before I get to your suggestion of a book or a play or something like this. Final question. So are you surprised positively or disappointed from how far we've come in space from the from like the time you were a boy watching your dad right. walk on the right. moon to the at the birth of the space age to your time with Boeing and Rand? until now when you're involved you know so intimately involved in this in the entrepreneurship and commercialization right. space are we where you thought we would be or are you surprised disappointed where where are you so um you know the funny thing about being there real time and doing all of this stuff is you know how it happened how it unfolded and you know why and you can get depressed about it um but i understand why things got so locked up and i mean and it um if you go through the the late 90s and 2000s, our ability to get anything done was just abysmal. And so that is depressing, but it's mostly depressing in hindsight. And what I am excited about is I really do see lots of interesting possibilities as we transition risk from government to industry. And there's going to be lots of interesting things going on when we learn how to live like a normal economy like for instance you know you've got a hundred small launch companies out of which i think we would be lucky to see five survive and in a normal business that's normal in a normal market that's normal in the space market that's unthinkable so we're going to kind of get used to what it is to like live in a real economy but i think it's pretty exciting so i yeah, I mean, it's easy to go back 50 years and go, my God, we've done, we've done so little. Um, but we have built a lot of the infrastructure, you know, not just technical infrastructure, but social infrastructure. You know, Elon Musk could not do what he do, he's doing without the fact that there are literally hundreds of thousands of very well-trained rocket engineers yeah. he can draw from. You know, when we started out, you had dozens. 
Yeah. And so that's all that's all foundation building. And now it's kind of I'm, I'm not sure whether it was Robert Heinlein or um, I don't know, Gerard O'Neill, maybe um, I don't know, who said the Cold War created this artificial salient into space where governments created an artificial salient. We won't really be in space until private industry breaks through that salient and, and actually creates real activities, real economic activities in space. I think that may be happening. I'm not sure, but I think it may be. And that's exciting. That's a great place to leave it. So final thing, do you have one book, play, movie, TV show, et cetera, that you might've consumed in some way, listened to, watched during the pandemic that you'd recommend to our listeners? Yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's always the answer. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Great one. The answer to life is, the answer to the question of life is? 42. 42. Yeah, there you go. What's the question? <laughs> there you go. No, do you know that? Do you remember I, that part? They, Therein is the mystery of it all. It's what is six times nine? Which is not 42. But that's the answer. Think about it. <laughs> that's a good thought to leave it with. That's a good thought to leave you. Thank you very much, Andrew Aldrin. Matt, it, it was even, even better than I thought. This is really enjoyable. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. 